The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merritt, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Hour 1 of Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm here taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night, the first day of October in 2023. I just learned something new tonight, Brian. Any month that begins uh, with the first day on a Sunday has a Friday the 13th in it. Did you know that? I, I saw it on Facebook, so it must be true, right? So there you go, folks. You learn something new every day. Brian Graves, of course, with us across the way, riding shotgun as usual. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always. Leading off, we'll welcome in the former Brooklyn Dodger, who went on to have, really have a stellar career in the bigs with Baltimore and a few other teams. Jim Gentile will join us. In the second half, we'll speak to author Adam Lazarus about his latest book entitled Wingmen. That is about the great relationship between really two great American heroes, John Glenn and Ted Williams. So well, we'll look forward to that conversation. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. Got some great people with some great stories ahead. Social media, we're out on Facebook. You can find us there. Give us a look and give us a like. We're out on X, which is Twitter, not anything illicit. So any children listening out there, fear not. Sports Talk New York is where we're at out there. Also, me on X at B Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they all can be heard on the website at www.sportstalknewyork.com. You can catch up anytime you wish. Well, our first guest, six-time All-Star, ALRBI leader in 1961. He made his big league debut at Ebbets Field for the Brooklyn Dodgers on September 10th. 1957. I'd like to welcome to the show tonight a member of the Baltimore Orioles Hall of Fame, Mr. Jim Gentile. Jim, good evening. Hi, Bill. How are you? We're doing great, Jim. I hope all is well with you out in Oklahoma. Well, we're getting by. boy. Good. Good man. Okay. Glad to hear that. Now, you you uh, went to the same high school as two greats, Harry Heilman and Joe Cronin. Yes, I did. <laughs> Yeah. Joe used to send me letters every time I got thrown out of a game. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. As people may not know, Joe Cronin was the longtime president of the American League back in the day, and uh, th that's why he got those uh, nasty grams out the gym there. Well, you, you... well he, he would uh, send me a letter, and down the bottom he said, that's no good way for an Italian boy to act out of sacred heart. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, no way. That's good. He kept up with you, Jim, that's for sure. Now, uh, you, you played your first minor league season as a pitcher. You were originally a pitcher, Jim. Well, when I signed with uh, Brooklyn, uh, it was a pitcher slash first baseman. Okay. And I, in June of 52, and I was sitting home in August, and uh Fuzzy Bavese called me and said, listen, uh, 
the Santa Barbara Dodgers down in Santa Barbara have lost a pitcher, and they could use another. So we'd like you to go down there and see what pro ball is like. There's only a month left of the season. Mm-hmm. So I went I went down there, and uh, I walked in, met George Sugar, the manager, and he had a ball in his hand, and he said, nice to meet you, and he flipped the ball to him, and he said, I uh, hope you're ready. You're pitching tonight. Oh, boy. Yes, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I told him I hadn't thrown a ball since uh, March. He said, well, then you should be strong. <laughs> yeah, you and should I, and, I, and, Bill, I wasn't a pitcher. You know, in high school, if you could throw a little bit harder than anybody else, uh, they threw you on the mound. Right. Being left-handed. And I pitched 74 innings, and I struck out 175. And then I pitched the All-Star game, East against West, and uh, I should only pitch three innings, but they pitched me nine innings. I struck out 18, and I won the trip back to New York for the World Series. Mm-hmm. Not bad. Went back. No, it wasn't. I went back there at 18, and I'm in New York, and they go, well, the first game's in uh, Ebbets Field. And I said, oh. So I grabbed a cab. They took me to the ballpark, but. The main thing was they didn't have any tickets for me. Oh. They, they 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 wanted to give me a ticket as a, a photographer or a news guy. I could walk during batting practice. I could go down on the field, and he said that when the game starts, this is really amazing. I could walk around until you saw an empty seat and just get in it. <laughs> so I called uh, I called uh, Mr. Welch. Uh, he was a secretary or something of the Dodgers and told him, and he got me a ticket, and I sat in front row, the very last seat next to the corner of the right field seat in wow. center field. <laughs> and then I couldn't get home. They told me I had to get a Brooklyn cab to take me home, a New York cab. I'm, yeah. I mean, a New York cab. A New York cab wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, uh, they would take me, but the Brooklyn cabs wouldn't go to New York at night. So. Oh, man. Yeah, so you were stuck. Uh, yeah, I wandered around for about two and a half hours wondering what I'm going to do, looking for, uh, I think it was an orange cab I was looking for, an orange top. And I, I saw a lady's store, so I walked in it, and I told the lady my problem, and I bought some stuff for my wife to take home. And she said, well, my friend has, her husband is a cab driver. Maybe he'll take it. She called him, and the guy was nice enough when he was finished his run to to take me into New York. Wow. So I, I called Welch again, and he said he's sorry about that, but that's all that's left. And I said, well, I'm going home. My wife's sick. I grabbed a plane and flew home. I didn't yeah. go the second game. And the funny thing is, is you know, talking about my debut, pinch hitting for, uh, I can't remember who I pinch hit in that game. My first time was Colfax, mm-hmm. uh, in Chicago. Well, I, I went, uh, I got up the bat and it was three and two with Robin Roberts was pitching and, uh, gonna be a fastball. And it just was one of those things. I hit a home run off the facing of the upper deck in center field right in front where I sat. <laughs> Unbelievable. Unbelievable. You can't, you can't make yeah. stuff like that up, Jim. No, not at all. I know it. <laughs> that is great. But they, 
then, you know, uh, I didn't play again until uh, the last game at Ebbets Field. That's how much uh, Alston let it. You know, they bring you up, but you never get to play. Yeah, I I remember times like that. Now, they called you Diamond Jim, and uh, Roy Campanella had some good advice for you. Yeah, see, he's the one who named me Diamond Jim. We When we were in Japan, we went to dinner a couple of times with a bunch of guys, and he just told me to be, you're going to get your shot, so be ready. He said, that you got to be ready. It's a shot to prove them that you can play. And I got sold from the Brooklyn Dodgers to Baltimore. I was playing winter ball in Panama. And Joe Antebelli walked by and he said, hey, Diamond, congratulations. And I said, for what? He said, well, don't you know you got traded to Baltimore? I said, no, nobody told me. Yeah. He said, well, it's in the sporting news. <laughs> so... But it turned out it wasn't even, you know, they wouldn't even trade me outright. They traded me on a look-see, 30-day look-see. And if they, if Richards didn't like what he saw, he sent me back to the Dodgers with 25000 Yeah, that I, I read that. Yeah, that, that is crazy. Uh, well, the thing that really makes it funny, I guess about five years ago, a gentleman sent me a letter that, Lee McPhail wrote to Buzzy Bavese. He typed it, I should say, but he signed it. But mm-hmm. he wanted to know, he said, as long as you won't make it a regular trade, here's uh, no Buzzy. Here, it named a bunch of guys, uh, Willie Miranda, Johnson, and a couple of uh, LaJoy, a couple of other guys that he could take his pick from. And it finally ended up by, I went there for 50000 and and uh, Bill LaJoy and Willie Miranda. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, you know, you go on a deal like that, you don't even feel like you're wanted. But yeah. I walked to the clubhouse in Miami, and I went to open the door, and my favorite guy on the club, as the years went on, was Brooks Robinson. He opened the door, and we had played against each other in 56 in the Texas League. And he opened the door, and he said, Where you been, Jim? I've been waiting for you for three years. <laughs> <laughs> and we became pretty good friends. Yeah, the, and the, I want to talk to you about that, Jim. Jim, T- Jim Gentile's with us tonight on the program, uh, talking about time getting traded from Brooklyn over to Baltimore. And uh, they could ship him back if they didn't want him. But uh, talk a little bit about Brooks, who we lost ba- uh, last week, Jim. Oh, he was a wonderful guy. I I always said if I had his personality, I would have been in the big league long before I got there. He was a wonderful guy. On and off the field, he was just uh, smooth as silk. And I used to joke, I said, playing first base with him at third is like sitting in a rocking chair. Everything's <laughs> yeah. just perfect. Uh, I was so sorry to hear the last couple of days that we lost him. Yeah, a great man, a great Hall of Famer, and an even better man. That, that's certainly true about the great Brooks Robinson, Jim. Now, when they sent you to Baltimore, let's talk about the time you hit the, the two grand slams in, in uh, two innings. 
Well, uh, you know, in 60, he decided that the best thing, uh, I'm going to be a rookie, uh, I play against right-handers and Walter Gropo, who was a rookie of the year, what, 58 or 59 for the Red Sox? Mm -hmm. He was going to play against left-handers. Well, we go into uh, Minneapolis, and he, uh, Ramos is starting, so I'm, I know I'm going to play, and uh, in a way, I really wasn't ready to play. I didn't feel up to it, but I thought, see, many Christmas, I can't get out of the game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, first time up, uh, Ramos, we got the three and two, and he happened to throw me a high fastball, and I hit it over the center field fence. And the next one... Uh, they brought in Paul Gill, ex-football player from, oh, wasn't Navy, was it? I, I don't know what college he went to, what was up there. And first pitch he threw me, I hit over the right field fence. It was just one of those things. And I, I come across the plate, I'm going in the dugout, and Paul Richards pats me on the back, and he says, son, I don't think that's ever been done before. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, the big thing was we played the next game, and uh, Jim Cott pitched. He didn't play me. And he, I got the pinch hit in the ninth inning with the bases loaded again and took a third strike from Bob Moore. And then the following day, uh, uh, oh, he was the great pitcher for Minneapolis. I keep forgetting his name, but he... He was starting, so he played me again in the first first or second inning. It was the first inning. Bases were loaded again, and I doubled off the fence and drove in three runs. So it was just a great series for me. A great string, yeah. I'll, I'll say that, Jim. That, that is for sure. Now, now, well, you don't get up. You don't get up with the bases loaded. Sometimes, maybe once, maybe very seldom, even twice. But that sixty-one. Uh, 61 team, or 60 team and the 61 team, we had guys who could get on. Brandt, Herzog, and Snyder. You yeah. always got up, see, hitting fourth, you always got up with men on somewhere. And there you go. And there, there, there was your opportunity that you took advantage of. Well, I was, I don't know, 61, I just, uh, everybody, everybody has a yearly year, you know? Mm hmm. And that was mine. I had a pretty good year in, in 60. 61 was my career year. I, I told Mc, uh, McPhail when he called me in the office, I said, Lee, look, I'm a 250 to 270 hitter. I'll drive at 25 to 35 home runs, and I'll drive in 85 to 100 RBIs wherever I play. And back there in the 50s, that was a good year. Mm-hmm. Now it's <laughs> It's nothing what they're doing nowadays. Right. But uh, back then, that was a, a good year. But I wanted him to know. I know most people wouldn't, but I wanted him to know. I, even though I hit three hundred two, uh, I was not a three hundred hitter. I I was the type of guy. I was a grinder. I had to play every day to have a good year. Well, for folks, uh, for folks who may not know. 
that 61 season for Jim Gentile, as he said, 302 batting average, 46 homers, 141 RBIs, 96 runs, 25 doubles, uh, 646 slugging. I mean, that, that, that's a tremendous season for, for any era, Jim. Well, uh, I'm proud of it. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I'm happy I, I got to play with the Orioles because, like, spring training there was Boop Powell, John Powers, Paul Tropo, and me, and Bobby Boyd, the regular first baseman. Mm-hmm. All of us trying to keep a job, get a job. <laughs> so, he, you know, you got to take your hat off for Mr. Richards. He, here he is having spring training in Miami Stadium, and he's got 42 players there. Yeah. And he's got to play these guys. I don't know why he kept me. I really don't. I didn't have a good, a good spring training. And when it came time, you know, like you saw in the 61, I went back to my locker, uh, the day before we were ready to leave and there was a note. See Paul Richards. Uh, oh boy, here we go. <laughs> I said, what do I do now? Is it time? So I went in to see him and he kind of had his back to me when I came in, the, in his office. And he looked over his shoulder and he said, son, you can't be as bad as you look. (laughs) (laughs) You know, what do you say to that? I just said, no, I said, I just, I just never did it in spring training. And I said, one thing in spring training, when you start off the uh, spring training, you're facing triple A pitchers, guys who are trying to make the club just like you are. Right. You're not you're not facing the big guys until the end of spring training, and then by that comes around, Gil Hodges is going to play every day. So, I said, but I just don't hit in the spring. I don't know if I just can't get myself up for it or what. He well, said, well, I'm going to take you to Baltimore, and I almost fainted. Yeah, uh, well, I was very. It, it, we had a a breakfast. For the newspaper guys, and when they, he announced the, the lineup and I was hitting, they all looked at each other like, what? I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't believe it. And I, we, we did real well the first game and I turned a double play first to home to first and I got a, a double. <laughs> yeah. The sports writer said I surprised 30,000 people by getting a hit. That's terrible. (laughs) I know it. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I want to remind the people, too, Jim. Jim Gentile with us on the program tonight. 141 RBIs in 61 was second to Maris's 142, but there was a mistake made. Maris reached base on an error. Uh, Numerous people uh, brought it up. That uh, so both of you had 141 RBIs in '61. Now your contract with the Orioles called for a five grand bonus if you led the league in RBIs. So finally, 50 years later, they made good on it. Yes, they did. They asked me to come back and throw the first ball out. Uh huh. So I flew in and uh, went. And they used to have a thing where the suites. Uh, you could do, you know, go to different suites and uh, tell a few stories and sign autographs, and you got paid to do that. Well, then they 
came time to throw the first ball out, the lady walked me out to the mound, and I said, do you have the ball? She said, no. Uh, I looked around, and there was a ball on the mound with the rosin bag on it. I said, can I use that ball? She said, no, that's the gamer. Uh-huh. I said, well, what am I going to throw? And then, so then all of a sudden I started to listen, and I heard them talking about it. Now, see, it really it wasn't in my contract. It was something that Lee McPhail said to me. He said, well, you know, if you would have led the league yourself, it would have been worth about $5,000 more right. on a contract. Well, all of a sudden, here comes his son, who is now the general manager, mm-hmm. and he runs up with one of those big golf-type big, checks. Big cardboard <laughs> checks, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't believe it. Uh, so it was really great. It was awful nice of him, you know. But I know when it first came out, the newspaper guy was from Chicago, and other newspapers picked it up. And they start, and the Baltimore ones picked it up and started saying, "Well, you're going to give them interest," and then they just kept <laughs> writing it up. What are you going to do for Diamond? Right. And it was real nice. Not bad. Yeah, I, that they came back with that. That was pretty good, Jim. Yes, it was. And uh, the Orioles have always been good to me. I, the four years I played there, and uh, I did thirty fantasy camps for, and uh, that was that was really great meeting so many different people. But I uh, I love the Orioles. Uh, I I love I love the Dodgers, but I didn't get to play. But the team was so good. I'm not kidding you. Um, when you have Hodges and Robinson and Free and Campanella and Snyder and Barilla, the only place they couldn't get a starter is left field, mm-hmm. if you look. Right. How many different guys played left field? That's the only place. You know, other than that, you know, when, when they when they brought someone up for 10 years, they had the same infield. Right. So Jack, Jackie retired him after the 40, the 50, 40, 50, He was it the 56 he retired? Yes. Or, yeah, 56. And, uh, they already had Gilliam, you know. Right, he was waiting in the Charlie wings. Charlie Neal. Yeah. Yeah, and they had Charlie Neal. So they always had good players just waiting. I mean, when you have D, C, B, A, double A, triple A, and you have two teams in each division, and then they got Spokane, so they had three triple A clubs. I mean, that, right. you've got a lot of good prospects. But with that reserve clause, Bill, a lot of ball, good ball players played for four years, maybe five, by into the fifth year, they're married, a couple of kids, they're not getting a shot, and mm-hmm. they reti- they quit. Right. Not a, not enough you money. Know. No. That, yeah, the reserve clause killed, killed a lot of ball players' careers. The only reason I say is because I, I made up my mind I wasn't going to quit until I get a shot. If I don't hit, then I know I'm not a major leaguer. But, you know, one time up. 57 and 30 times up in the Coliseum with right field was about 440. Right. You know, they had the short left field fence. And uh, more or less, uh, they let me know that 
Larker was the guy they're going to keep for 50, 59 or 58, whatever year it was. With with the and, L.A. Dodgers, right, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, they, they sold me to the White Sox in 59. Bill Beck just took over the White Sox. Buzzy called me in at spring training and said, Jim, I'm selling you to the White Sox. Pack your bag and take the plane to Chicago when we leave. Uh-huh. So, so stupid me. I go up, I pack all my clothes, sitting in the lobby, waiting for him to call the, us to get on the plane. And here comes Max Macon, the manager of St. Paul, and he stopped. He said, where are you going, Diamond? I said, well, I'm supposed to go to Chicago with the Dodgers. He said, no, I just talked to Buzzy to they can't make up their mind who they're going to trade. So uh, Buzzy says he wants you to stay here and work out with us until they make up their mind. <laughs> yeah. I was there all of 59. He, so, he was some character. He, he was a real character, wasn't he, Jim? Max Bacon? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, Max, Max had a lot of things wrong with him. He just, <laughs> he, uh,. <laughs> I made the all-star team, and we played in Omaha, and there was a couple of ladies uh, sitting over the dugout. And you can't help but see them when you're going in. You had to go down into the dugout in Omaha. Why not? And you can't help but, <laughs> yeah, you can't yeah. help but see them. And I, I go in. We won the game. I think I got a couple of hits and drove in a couple of runs, and my roommate, Palmquist, won the game. And he walks in and says, and Jim, you keep your eyes off the your girls up in the stand. <laughs> and I, so I, I looked at him. I said, "Well, give them tickets up in the grandstand for Pete's sake." Yeah. And then nobody <laughs> will look at it. <laughs> yeah, get him he out suspended of me. Oh, he man. suspended me. Sent me back to St. Paul. Oh, gee. So I, I got on the plane, went back. Buzzy Babazi calls me and said. Now, you tell me what happened. And I told him, he said, that's not what Max said. He said, you walked in and started a fight with your roommate, Palmquist. Oh, I said, man. did what? I said, did you talk to Palmquist? I said, that's not what happened. But Buzzy said, no, no. You go ahead and you fly back to Denver. And don't worry about it. So I got on a plane. I flew back to Denver. And I got there about the seventh inning of the game. And in Denver, the clubhouse is out in center field. And between innings, I ran out. It was a top of the eighth tie scorer. And all of a sudden, he says, Diamond, you pinch it. Well, I pinched it. Grace of God, I hit a home run. Put us ahead. I come around, and you know that back then, there, there's no shenanigans. It was just guys would shake their hand. Well, they all moved down to the into the dugout. Well, they were all standing there by Mac, so I ran all the way to the other end of the dugout. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't give him the <laughs> shaking <laughs> hands. No, yeah. <laughs> you you're right though, Jim. The the all this fooling around today when you hit a home run, I mean, you hit a home run, okay, it's great, but get back in the dugout, you know? None of this fooling around and uh putting hats on and Dancing and stuff like that—that's all garbage to me. 
Oh boy, Paul Richards have a fit. Yeah. You, know, you, you better know the you better know the count. You if you're sitting on the down and hitters up and say it's two and two and he sees you laughing, he'll walk down and say, Okay, what's the count? If you didn't know the count Oh boy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a he didn't want a great... you sitting there, he, Yeah, he didn't want you sitting there talking fishing. A great, a great baseball guy, Paul Richards. Well, Jim, we got to run. I want to have you back because okay. there's so much more left, uh, more fish to fry here about uh, the uh, the A's, Rocky Colavito, Charlie Finley, Japan, stuff like that. I have to get yeah. to with you. <laughs> you, you want to come back with us? Oh, I'd love to. All right, Jim. Yeah, I'll stay in touch with you, and we will get you back on and uh, discuss these other important notes that we have to talk about. Well, the biggest thing is once I start talking baseball, I get diarrhea of the mouth. Yeah, that's all right. That, uh, I, all right. I love Bill. to hear that. But I'll be in touch with you, Jim, and we'll get you back on soon. Okay, Bill. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is the great Jim Gentile, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, thank you. Thank him for being with us on this Sunday evening. Uh, up next on Sports Talk New York, we're going to welcome in author Adam Lazarus, and we'll delve into his new book about John Glenn and Ted Williams. Some interesting stuff. Two great Americans. Stay with us, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York tonight. I have a report uh, in just handed to me. 3 nothing Chiefs tonight on Sunday Night Football, and Tay-Tay is in attendance, Brian. So you, you can be, you know, take solace in that fact that uh, the world is safe in democracy. Taylor Swift is in the ballpark. That, that's wonderful. Well, uh, I just want to make a comment. Uh, I thank you guys for stopping by and listening tonight, by the way, and uh, I, I love the fall. I hate the end of the baseball season. Now I'll, I'll look forward to uh, February 24th, the first televised game from Port St. Lucie. Uh, uh, I can watch the postseason now with, with really no skin in the game. It's, it's a yearly ritual of having no team in the hunt for the World Series crown. Right, Brian? Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, it's a <laughs> no respect at all. Uh, I, I despise the Phillies and the Braves, though, so the, the, I will be looking for them to get knocked off at their earliest convenience. I mean, the, the Sacuna guy, I think he's a clown. Great baseball player, but a clown. He uh, continues to do unprofessional things uh, due to his self-absorbed habits. He, he's, he's 
dancing across the plate. He didn't even touch it. They had to tell him to go back and touch the plate. This this is a uh, you know not thinking thinking of yourself before you thinking of your team. And I'm very very sorry to see Buck Show Walter go as manager of the New York Mets today. Uh, wasn't his fault the things that happened in, in this horrible horrible season that just took place. Uh, I wish Buck the best and I uh, hope he comes back to MLB because he really was uh, great on on the uh, Major League Baseball Network. Well, we'll continue on Sports Talk to you, New York tonight. Our, our next guest, an author specializing in nonfiction books featuring iconic and compelling figures in American history. Now, this includes Chasing Greatness, Super Bowl Monday, Best of Rivals, Hail to the Redskins, uh, about Joe Gibbs, the Diesel, and the Hogs, and the glory days of the D.C. football dynasty. Tremendous book. His writing has appeared in USA Today, ESPN The Magazine, and the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, among other publications. Uh, if he's in Atlanta, I hope he's not upset about the things I just said. New books titled Wingmen, The Unlikely, Unusual, Unbreakable Friendship Between John Glenn and Ted Williams. You can learn more about this great man and his books at adamlazarusbooks.com. I welcome to the show tonight Adam Lazarus. Adam, good evening. Good evening. Thanks so much for having me. Wonderful to have you tonight, Adam. Now, I want to talk to you a little about about your catalog before we start. Tell us sure. a, little, a little bit about that book uh, with with Joe Gibbs. Well, it was about you know uh, one of the more interesting dynasties in the history of the NFL. Particularly, you know, we're always talking about quarterbacks. Joe Gibbs won three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, which is pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of really interesting characters on that team um, who built people, not just the players, the people who built the team. Um, and a lot of famous players themselves, you know, Joe Theismann, John Riggins, Doug Williams, uh, lots of great players, Dexter Manley. Uh, it was a very unique dynasty of that era in the 80s when, when the NFL was probably in its heyday. Right. Yeah, just, just a tremendous topic and uh, going to have to delve into that further. Now, the, the current book that we want to talk about tonight, uh, what made you decide to, to uh, bring this to the public's attention now? Well, it was just, I, I saw a photo, it's a photo that's in the book of Ted Williams and John Glenn at mm-hmm. their base during the Korean War, and I had no idea about the story. And I actually, you know, I know a lot about Ted Williams' baseball career. I even knew a, a good amount of, of his military service. Um, and conversely, I, I knew a lot about John Glenn. I'm actually from Ohio, so I knew you don't grow up in Ohio without knowing a little bit about John Glenn. Right. And uh, yeah. I was just amazed to hear about this, this story that they, they served together in the Korean War, and so I started reading a little bit about it, um, and it turns out that they did serve together. They Not only did they serve together, they flew combat missions together, uh, which was really interesting to me. But then I found out that particularly later on in, in their, you know, when they were kind of senior citizens in their 70s and early 80s, uh, their friendship really got even stronger. And particularly, I think kind of the high point of the book is when uh, your listeners probably remember when John Glenn went back to space in 1998 at the age of 77. Mm-hmm. Um Ted Williams was one of the first people he, he stopped over to invite, and he was on the run, the launch pad uh, when John Glenn went back to space. Uh, and so that was kind of just it was a culmination of their friendship that lasted about 50 years. Right. Uh, so so much more uh, worthy of a sports topic that people should know about, Adam, uh, about the relationship between these two American heroes than people worrying about uh, a singer at a football game. Um, 
I, I can't stop thinking about that. Uh, it's ridiculous. But uh, let, let, let's get uh, ensconced in, into this topic that we're going to talk about tonight. Now, what the book is, it's kind of a biography of the of the two guys and we'll call them american heroes again because that's rightfully so what they are that they mm -hmm. they bonded during wartime and they actually did as you said remain friends for life mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think there's a lot of people who probably develop friendships uh, and connections uh during service in the marine corps or the military in general i, I never served in the marines or the military uh, i never served in a war but that was something John Glenn said many years later about his friendship with Ted Williams, was that when you serve in, in war with someone, there's a bond you can't even describe. Uh, and I think that was probably where the relationship started. But I think um, they, for all their many, many differences, they had a handful of things in common, particularly their drive and their passion for the, the things they pursued and uh, their, their pursuit of excellence, really. Um, so that was the kind of the thing that I, when I realized that, for all their differences, they were kind of united by their their interest in, in nuance and details to things that most people kind of overlooked. And I think that's what made John Glenn uh, a great pilot and eventually a NASA uh, pioneer and a senator and it made, what made Ted Williams a great baseball player and a great fisherman and all the things that he was successful at. Two great lives well lived, and uh, we'll continue talking about it. Uh, I just lost my train of thought, but... Uh... They really did set off on different paths, so to speak, Adam. Uh, John Glenn was, was kind of a modest guy, uh, religious, mm -hmm. uh, political, um, where Ted Williams was more of uh, actually a, a really cocky guy, as we see with his problems with the Boston fans. Mm -hmm. um, and, and they both were on different sides of the political spectrum, really, and uh, w different wives, multiple mistresses, and uh, he really didn't get close to his kids until uh, he, he was uh, in his final years. Yeah, they were polar opposites in, in all the ways you described. I mean, uh, <laughs> Ted Williams, for lack of a better word, was often considered you know something of a jerk. A lot of people did not like him. He was kind of... He could be your best friend one day and then kind of, you know, really be angry and nasty to you the next. Right. Um, I think he, he was, he was always, he was always angry at something or someone. And meanwhile, John Glenn was one of the nicest people I think anyone could possibly imagine. Uh, and Ted Williams was always swearing and always kind of talking, you know, off the cuff. John Glenn was very measured and never, almost never swore, never said a bad word about anyone. Uh, so I, they did definitely in all, all the things about their lives that were so different that Ted Williams had mu a very troubled personal life, uh, and John Glenn was kind of the model of stability. Mm -hmm. But uh, they did they did have a friendship, and they did connect. And um, I think, you know, I interviewed John Glenn's son. I interviewed both his kids for this book. I interviewed John Glenn's son, David, uh, and he was talking to me about his, his father's friendship with Ted, William, with Ted Williams. And uh, one of the things he kind of said was just, that, you know, they were so, so different, but I think that's why they liked each other. They were friends. They learned a lot from each other. They they explored new things, and uh, it was interesting to see. You know, they were always around the same kinds of people. Ted Williams was always around baseball people, and John Glenn was always around Marines at that point. Um, so I think they kind of liked, you know, they, they just really enjoyed one another's company, and uh, it's just kind of a, a good sign of, you know, we all have people in our lives who were not exactly like, but we're close to or we've made friendships with. And I think that was kind of something that helped me understand the book is um, 
that, you know, opposites attract in a way. Right. Well, the title, let's start with that, Wingmen. You, you bring out right away in the book that the, the current uh, definition of wingman to, to people today is a totally different connotation uh, as it was during wartime. Uh, mm-hmm. Similar but uh, totally different, uh, we'll call it theaters of operation, uh, if you will. Um, how did they meet and, ha- and how did uh, they get involved with each other? During the war? Yes. Yeah, well, so they were in the same squadron. It was just by chance that they both they wound up in the same squadron. And the squadron they were in was called VMS 311. Uh, it was it's, they were stationed at a base in South Korea during the war in, in the spring and winter of 1953. Uh, it was a small squadron, 30 or 40 pilots. So they, you know, that size group they they ran into each other every day. Uh, but the whole wingman thing, Ted Williams was a recall reservist, which, you know, we have today, he was in the reserves, he was in the Marine Corps reserves, and he was much, he had much less experience at flying planes and as particularly flying jets. So he was always paired up with a guy who was a career Marine, who had, you know, a full-time Marine who had a lot more experience in training. So they would pair a guy up like John Glenn, who was career Marine and had a you know, years and years of experience and flown dozens of missions during World War II with a guy who had far less training, and that was Ted Williams. So after a while, particularly because a lot of guys didn't like to fly with John Glenn, he was very aggressive in the air and took a lot of chances in, in the air in their, during their missions, uh, it came to be that Ted Williams ended up flying with John Glenn very frequently, and that's kind of how the relationship starts. Yeah, very interesting right there. And uh, uh, I just want to mention to the baseball fans listening, as, as we know, Ted uh, lost so many years to military service, uh, both in World War II and Korea. And mm-hmm. uh, we, we ha- all, all we have to do is look back on, Adam, the uh, what if uh, Ted had mm-hmm. those, those years back in the prime of his career. Would he have been a 700 home run guy? Would he have been a 3,000 hit man? Uh, how many years would he hit 400 during those those years that that he uh, that he was out? So that's really something to think of as well. Yeah, I think that's um, for sure. He would have gotten to well over 3,000 hits. He probably would have gotten close to 700 home runs. He probably would have won more MVPs. He could have won another triple crown or so. Uh, so there are a lot of what ifs. But there's some people who, you know, during the course of my research talking to people, uh, particularly people who know their baseball history and even knew Ted, it's interesting that for all the years that he did miss, particularly the years in the Korean War, it's almost done more for his legacy having missed those years and, and having served his country. So it's really kind of an interesting, you know, give and take. Yes, he would have produced so many more numbers, but all these years later we wouldn't be talking about uh, the things that he missed out on in because of his service to his country. So, I, you know, I always take it, a look at it like, yes, he missed a lot of time, but uh, his, re- his legacy and his reputation is almost even stronger because uh, of giving up so much of his time to the war and, and to the country. Right. It adds to the Ted Williams mystique, if you will, Adam, mm-hmm. and also uh... – Again, I lost my train of thought. Uh, makes him the legend, the American hero that he probably mm-hmm. wouldn't be known as had he just stuck to baseball. Yeah, you know, Ted's service in the military is very interesting. He didn't. He served in World War II for three years, but he didn't serve abroad. He never served in combat. Um, so, I, in some ways, he kind of missed out. You know, a lot of guys. John Glenn certainly he flew fifty-seven missions during the during World War II, and there were many other people like Bob Feller. 
um, Hank Bauer, great players who, who served in, in battle, uh, and, you know, that enhanced her reputation. But for Ted to go back in, in Korea and where very, very few major leaguers serve, particularly in combat, uh, I think it gave his, his reputation and his service a, a, a real boost to the, what people remember. One great thing that, that uh, the book brings out, and uh, people will see this straight out, and, and uh, it gives you a little chuckle, old magnet ass. Right? <laughs> yeah. I, I, had never, yeah. I never knew that. <laughs> I never heard that before. I had never heard that either. Um, yeah, that's what they call it, John Glenn, because as I kind of hinted earlier, John Glenn, when the Korean War broke out, in June of 1950, John Glenn was serving at Quantico in Virginia, and for two years they still didn't send him to the war. And he was just didn't understand why he couldn't, he wasn't being called into war. He had you know, very decorated, particularly in World War II, but he was uh, had a lot of great experiences and training, and he couldn't understand why he wasn't sent to war. So he actually begged his superiors to send him to the war, and they finally did. And when he got there, he was kind of trying to make up for missed time, the way he, is the way he put it. Um, he would go out on missions, and their job during the war was to basically cross into the 38th parallel, drop, find their targets, often in places like North Korea's capital, Pyongyang or wherever, and they would drop their bombs, and their job was to just get out of there. And John Glenn, because he was trying to make up for lost time, would drop his bombs and then circle around and try to pick people off with his with the cannons on his plane and do this multiple times. And it often resulted in his plane getting hit up or shot at or whatever. And he returned several times to base with big holes in his plane. And so they started calling him Old Magnet Ass because he was attracting, <laughs> he was attracting magnets. Yeah. He's attracting metal so easily. Right, yeah, well, uh, th- that is tremendous. We're speaking with Adam Lazarus tonight. His new book is called The Wingmen, The Unlikely, Unusual, Unbreakable Friendship Between John Glenn and Ted Williams. And Williams, as we said, uh, Adam, was uh, a good flyer. Uh, mm-hmm. But uh, a couple of incidents, too, we had. Uh, there was a no-wheels emergency landing. Mm-hmm. But the two, they de- developed immense respect for each other, and, and that carried on through their lifetimes. Yeah, it's interesting about Ted uh, and his, his pilot's work. A, a lot of people have said, I've heard this kind of myth repeated over and over again. I know Bobby Knight, who was close with Ted Williams, said this once, that he was the only person who was the greatest in history of three different things, hitting a baseball, fishing, and flying an airplane. Well, that's not quite true. Ted was a great propeller plane pilot during World War II. It's one of the reasons he didn't serve abroad, because they kept him at Pensacola Naval Air Station in Florida, where he, he did a lot of training of the cadets because he was so gifted, and he was so good at flying these propeller planes, the Corsair particularly. Uh, so he had a lot of experience with that, but when the Korean War comes about, it's the beginning of the jet age, and he had no experience flying jets. And so he had to do some quick retraining. Only a couple months he learned to fly the jet. So when he gets over to Korea, he didn't have much experience flying jets, and he got himself into trouble a little bit. Uh, he even got himself into trouble flying with John Glenn. Uh, so he did have his harrowing moments there, here and there. One time, at least two times, he crashed his plane and really was lucky to survive. And on one of those missions, it was with John Glenn. And I think that was, again, you know, going through life and death together, uh, that may have made their friendship, their relationship stronger. I have to ask, Adam, just out of curiosity, did you speak with Claudia Williams about the, about, uh, when you were writing the book? Yeah, I did. I, okay. I interviewed her. Uh, she wrote a book about her, you know, relationship with her, her dad a couple of years ago. Yes. Uh, she also, you know, she was around, 
Um, in particular, I, I mentioned that uh, in that episode at, at Cape Canaveral where John Glenn goes back to space and Ted Williams is there and he's in a wheelchair. It's co- sort of towards the end of his life. She was there and she told me all the, you know all that she remembered about it. Um, but uh, you know, I was very fortunate to interview all three of the children of these uh, these two men because two of Ted's children are no longer alive. Uh, right. but, but I was able to interview Claudia and both of John Glenn's children. Nice. Yeah, I just wanted to to uh, check into that. Now, uh, after after the war, after these these dangerous missions, and and uh, let's talk a little bit about their their post war lives, and and how did they keep in touch, and and what was their relationship like after the war? Well, it's really interesting to me because um, when they get back from the war, they go right back into their careers. Uh, Ted returns to baseball. He has a home run in his second at bat. He has actually a great season the year he returns, even though he only played like 40 games. And then he goes back to winning. He wins two more batting titles. He has several great seasons, and he retires. Uh, he becomes kind of the spokesman for Sears Roebuck Sporting Goods, and then he later managed the, the Washington Senators. Mm-hmm. So he's very busy with all those activities. And John Glenn becomes a, NASA, a Navy test pilot, and then he goes to NASA and becomes a senator. Uh, so he, they don't really have much of a relationship in these middle years, which is kind of the middle of the book, mainly the 1960s and 70s. They keep in touch. Um, Ted Williams sends a telegram to John Glenn after one of his famous uh, Navy test pilot flights. He visits him in the clubhouse at a game in Washington. They hang out at a um, – they meet at a Sears Roebuck convention in Chicago one time. They trade letters and telegrams and, and Christmas cards and things like that. But they really aren't, I wouldn't say, close at this period in the, when, you know, they're really making their careers uh, in the public. And it, it's kind of an interesting point in the book. I was, I was almost worried for a point that there wasn't a whole book here. But later on in life, particularly when they're older, and I think maybe they have just more time on their hands or they're still, you know, they're doing some introspection about their lives, they really reconnect. And particularly when Ted Williams is very sick, uh, John Glenn's one of the people who he's most in touch with. He visits him in the hospital. He call, calls to check on him all the time. They drop by his house in Florida. So that's kind of what was really kind of a neat ending to the book for me was that late in life they really rekindled their friendship. Yeah, and it's interesting. Ted Ted went, uh, I guess, a good t- ten years before John John Glenn passed on. And uh, the, there was time to reflect. As you say, they were busy. Uh, John Glenn with NASA, Ted Williams with baseball. And uh, Sears, I remember the Sears Game Fisher uh, was Ted's boat that he he had in the Sears catalog when I was a kid. I always wanted a Sears Game Fisher. Uh, it was just a, that was the boat that he sold. Uh, but that, he hopped that, so many products. Yeah, Sears, yeah. <laughs> yeah he, he was great. <clears throat> and excuse me. Uh, as we said, they reconnected uh, later in life when Ted Ted became ill, and. Uh, just, just a tremendous story, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought this to light because I, I think people needed to know this, Adam. I, I think people needed to know this sooner than, than we are speaking about it now, and I just think it, it was a great project. What, what, uh, what feelings do you have uh, after the fact? Well, I think um, I, one of the things that I've noticed. When I've been been talking about the book, and you know, I've, I've talked to other people along the course of this project. Uh, the thing that I thought was really interesting was, you know, we hit, you, you hinted at it earlier. Ted Williams was a Republican. He was a, very, very close with President Nixon. He was later pretty close with the Bush family. Right. He was a you know, big into the NRA. He was very conservative. 
Uh, John Glenn was a Democrat. He wasn't exactly the most liberal Democrat, but he was a lifelong Democrat. Um, and they had this relationship that they talked politics and they got into heated arguments here and there. And even when John Glenn ran for president as a Democrat in 1984 during the primary, Ted Williams wouldn't support him. And it was kind of a bump in the road in their friendship. But they overcame that and they overcame their political differences. And I don't think either one of them ever convinced the other of any side of any argument. But I always think, you know, how this kind of book relates to people today. Um, people who were able to lay down their swords when it comes to politics and their disagreements and their, uh, all the mistrust and everything, uh, that they were able to stay friends and their friendships not only did survive their political differences, but it almost thrived because they were able to put all their politics and all the things they believed in aside and just be friends. There is a great example in the book for us, Adam, because I think with today's polarization in between Democrats, Republicans, however you want to define them, friendships are disappearing, but they're, they're not surviving the way uh, the friendship between John Glenn and Ted Williams did. It's really an example for, for all of us today to look back and to think that if these two great Americans living their lives the way they did were able to connect and we're, we're able to call themselves friends that uh, we should be able to do it today. Absolutely. You know, you could say a lot about both these men and their politics and everything. They both adored this country, and they cared so much. For the military and the Marine Corps, they were very devoted to that because they served. But larger picture, they both loved their country, served their country, cared about, you know, public service. Um, and for all their differences about Republican, liberal, whatever, they were able to set that aside. And, I, yeah, I think that's a great example for people today. Um, if, if you can look on the other side of the aisle and see that the person you're arguing with about whatever issue, they're putting their, the country's best interests at heart, regardless of whether or not you believe, with them, believe them or agree with them, uh, it's a good example for all of us. Right, and the, the, the way things are uh, being damaged today, it, it's definitely a good example. Any uh, upcoming projects, Adam, that you can tell us about uh, that you're working on? No, I'm, I'm still big into this, you know, promoting this book, going around good. certain yes. places in the country talking about it. I'm always uh, thinking about my next project. I was, you know, you know, you mentioned earlier my first four books were all sports books, and this book has a, a, a good amount of sports history to it because of Ted Williams. Uh, but I'm always looking to sort of branch out and do something new, and this is the first opportunity to do that, and it's been well-received, so I'm, I'm pretty happy with that. So I'm hoping the next book I work on is uh, even more sort of, tangentially related to sports. Yeah, uh, as we we touched on, Adam, this this story is bigger than sports. It transcends mm-hmm. sports. Uh, it it's two men, uh, two two yeah. American heroes, and that that's the beauty of it. Absolutely, yeah. That's uh, something that I've you know I've even been able to look at my own life and friendships I have, uh, different people I'm different with from, but uh, stay friends with and able to put things aside and the, the things we've gone through together. So it's kind of a, a story that I think a lot of people can relate to. Have you reached out to MLB, or have they reached out to you about uh, any any interviews on, on the uh, network? I have talked to some of the people, uh, some of the you know on-camera people here and there. They've all received copies. But the book only came out a couple weeks ago, and plus, Right now, they're all very busy covering, uh, well, I mean, the playoffs are set now, but they're going to be covering the postseason. Uh, so hopefully after that, hopefully after World yeah. Series time, they'll, be, they'll show some interest. Yeah, I hope so, I, Adam. I, I'm, I'm sorry. 
No, I, I did get to go to uh, the Red Sox minor league stadium in Worcester, Mass. Okay, uh, some yeah. Promotions there. Uh, that's a beautiful ballpark. If anyone ever has a chance to get out there, um, and uh, they were very, you know, there was a lot of people. There's always people who love Ted Williams. For even though he's been retired for gosh, for 63 years, I think um, there are still people who never saw him play, never even, or I wasn't even alive when he played, and I have tremendous amount of respect for Ted Williams' career. So there's always people who want to hear and, and learn about Ted Williams. Right. He's a fascinating man. Uh, I had Claudia on when she did her book. and it, mm-hmm. uh, I just love talking about him. My parents used to see him down in Florida when uh, they lived close by, and they'd see him in Walmart and Winn-Dixie. And, uh, oh, he, he, believe it or not, he had a kind word most of the time. So I, yeah, was, I was happy about I was, that. <laughs> I've been surprised. When I grew up, I heard that Ted Williams was – you know, impossible to deal with. He was, he was always yelling at sports writers. He was spitting at fans. And <laughs> yeah. I had sort of a dim view of Ted Williams. But the more I learned about him, and particularly, you know, his service to the Jimmy Fund, which is uh, right, a research right. charity in, in yeah. Massachusetts, uh, and, all, and then I learned about all the sick children, even before the Jimmy Fund, that he went and visited in the hospital or he went and visited them in their homes. Uh, Ted Williams, for all his many, 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 many flaws, I think was a really a good, kind-hearted person, and he was a great American. So it was it was interesting to learn about that and put uh, the sort of the cartoon character image that I think we have of him aside. Right. Yeah, and, and that's the way we should remember him. Well, Adam Lazarus, been a pleasure having you with us tonight. The book is titled again, folks, Wingmen, The Unlikely, Unusual, Unbreakable Friendship Between John Glenn and Ted Williams. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night, Adam, to be with us out here on Long Island, and I wish you the best with the book. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. That is Adam Lazarus, folks. Radio, it's a sound salvation. Radio is cleaning up the nation. Right, Brian? That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Jim Gentile and Adam Lazarus, my engineer, of course, Brian Graves, and you guys for joining us. See you next on October 15th. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.